0: Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock.
1: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Orchadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian.
0: This week we're kicking off season four of Bible Worm with Genesis 6 through 9, a text that is part children's story, part post apocalyptic nightmare the story of the great flood and Noah's Ark. We talk about God's regret at having made humankind and the challenge of knowing when things have failed and it's time to start over. We imagine what it must have been like for Noah and those with him to endure many months of uncertainty and then the difficulty of knowing when the danger was finally over. And we discuss God's movement from violent destruction to covenantal commitment. And we wonder whether we, too, can learn to respond to disappointment a deeper relationship rather than with violence. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, welcome to season four of Bible Worm.
1: Season four! I
0: know, right? It's crazy.
1: We're so old. <laughs> we get older every year. Yeah,
0: we are. We're yeah, even we do.
1: older this year than last year.
0: Yeah, that is true. We're like, I don't know. It feels like I'm at least a year older than I was this time last year. <laughs> <laughs> the witty banter. I'm already like, oh yeah, I regret the witty banter. It's like we've only been, we're in minute one of season we're four. We're in minute
1: one of episode one.
0: So catch me up on the things. How was the summer?
1: I, um <laughs> The summer was good. My son and I, my son's almost 16, and he and I went to Israel for a week and a half. which was amazing and crazy. And we studied, um, I studied so much about the creation texts, Bobby, which we are not starting with. I
0: know. (laughs) I was like,
1: (laughs) I have so much Torah in my head, but no, that's not, that's not what we're doing. That's fine. That was the highlight. That was the highlight of my summer. Then we came home and got COVID. That was probably the low light, but Uh, we um, are okay.
0: Well, I'm glad. Yeah.
1: Yes, we are okay. Okay, I have one question that has been burning a hole in my mind. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. saved it up for you this whole time. Through yeah. my studies in Israel, through my illness and my recovery. Oh my goodness. There was a story you told last spring about a little bird. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. spring, it was summer. Yeah. It was, it was like our the summer, summer series. series. Yeah. We were, Cause we were talking about um I don't remember what exactly we're talking about, but there was a little bird who had made a nest in a part of your house you were supposed to paint. Yeah. And you were unsure how to respond to this (laughs) situation. It
0: was an ethical quandary that I had. Yeah. So the bird had built a nest in the eaves of my house and we were getting ready to get our house painted. And so I was concerned. Like He was actually building the nest, I think, when we talked and I was afraid, or she, that -hmm. they were going to have babies and then we were gonna destroy their babies with our house painting. But here's the bad news slash good news is my spouse and I are very indecisive. And painting <laughs> your house is like a big deal, right? Have you ever painted it your is house? Such it's such a so, big so stressful.
1: deal. It's So it much money and then you're like this is
0: gonna be their house for the next 10 years and then all of these things. I
1: painted my house a bad color maybe eight years ago. Oh, and no. I just look at it every day and hate it.
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> So we yep. choked right at the last minute. We were supposed to get our house painted, uh, right? I think it was maybe at the beginning of June and we choked and we just called the painters and we we're like, we can't do it right now because we can't make a decision. And so we put it off for six weeks, not because and of the so bird. the birdie has flourished. Yeah. So by the time we got around to painting our house in like July, I think it was, the um the birds had like grown up and flown and like <laughs> gone to college and like I know, I was <laughs> say. had baby birds of their own. Like I don't know the bird life cycle That's... very well, but yeah. So the birds survived very well, even Due though to your
1: indecisiveness. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: Well, Amy, speaking of the <laughs> destruction speaking
1: of, of creatures, yep. we're
0: starting out this narrative <laughs> lectionary cycle with the story of the flood. Which is such an interesting choice. Like the last three years, we've started with one or the other of the Genesis 1-2 creation stories.
1: Yeah. And I was so ready for that, Bobby. I was ready. (laughs) Me too.
0: Yeah. So, but instead, and this is the first year, even though this is season four of Bible Worm, we started in the second year of the narrative lectionary. So this is actually the first year in the new narrative lectionary cycle. And it starts with the flood story, which is such a fascinating choice to me that this is where you would begin. But this is where they begin. And so thusly, also where we begin.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: So today we're in kind of a smattering of texts across the early chapters of Genesis. We're in 6, 5 to 22, and then 8, 6 to, the narrative lectionary is 12, but I decided to go to 14 or else the dove never gets to land anywhere. And that just made me kind of sad. And then (laughs) 9, 8 to 17. So we're going to do all of those things uh, today. But for the purposes of narrative lectionary, like interpretation, making sense of the text for today, are there things that we should talk about before we get into this text directly?
1: I think that what feels most pressing to me in terms of context is for listeners to know that there are many cultures that tell a story of a great flood. That could be interpreted in lots of ways. Just yeah. that fact alone, you know, like, you know, you could say like, well, maybe there was a great flood. Yeah. <laughs> That's why so many stories talk about it. And um, you could say that they, they knew each other or that they didn't know each other. And it's just, they live, you know, surrounded by water that is this source of life, but also yeah. of terror, Yeah, chaos, drown, you know, flooding is, is a real danger. And, and maybe somewhat relatedly, you know, I don't think we're going to go too deeply into this, but our listeners may already be familiar with the, the theory that there are several different hands in the writing of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And this is one of the stories where if if you're teaching an introduction to this theory, to source theory, yeah. this is a text that you might specifically highlight, showcase, because you, if you wanted to, you really could pull apart two complete versions of this story, you know, and there are points where you could ask, wait, how many animals are brought on the Ark? And there are two (laughs) answers to the question, like, how many days did this go on for? How did, you know, and you'll see maybe that like Noah is introduced twice and it tells us twice that there was, you know, the world was corrupt. And to me, in terms of, sort of our purposes today, that again, just goes back to this idea that like, this is a story in like the human consciousness or the human experience or, or something that, that really wanted to be told. And a yeah. lot of people told it. A lot of people told it within this community of, of biblical folk <laughs> yeah, and in other cultures as well.
0: And I really love that, Amy. That's so helpful. And, you know, this is actually, this is the text that I use in my classes to teach source theory. I, mean, I start with the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2, and we mm-hmm, talk about those. Mm-hmm. But this one's so interesting, as you know, because the two the two layers that people pull apart are actually interwoven. It's not yeah. one story and then another story, because you can't have like, there's a flood and then it was fine and there was another flood. So right. if you're going to have two stories, you got to weave them together. And so we do that in my in my classes. And it I mean, it really is very interesting. Okay, so in terms of the biblical story and where we are, like we don't need to talk much about it, but we've had creation and then mm-hmm. the first humans, Adam and Eve in the Genesis 2-3 story, have been expelled from the garden. We're in the about the 10th generation or something like that of human beings right here, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, things have not gone great, <laughs> I suppose, is how you would say that. And so when we pick up, Uh, Here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God's got some regrets about the whole project of creation, it seems. Yeah. So I'm going to start out with uh, 6, 5 to 12, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. All right. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off of the land the human race that I've created, from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies, because I regret that I ever made them. But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. These are Noah's descendants. In his generation, Noah was a moral and exemplary man. He walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In God's sight, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God saw that the earth was corrupt because all creatures behaved corruptly on the earth. So I'm just curious, I mean, in the beginning of this story, the, the first way it's said is the Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil. In the CEB, every idea in their minds, but I think it's every inclination of their hearts, or something like that is the Hebrew was always completely evil. Can you just talk a little bit about that sort of assessment? Like God looks at the earth and that's what God sees amongst people. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, like, how do you start thinking about that?
1: I mean, the first thing that it makes me think of is how over the course of the first creation account, when each part of creation, comes to be, God looks at it and says, it's good. Yeah. That was good. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, we see over the course of the next few chapters that humans don't behave the way that God wanted them from, you know, something like what happened in the garden, which I think our traditions differ on just how bad of a thing that was. Yeah. But Cain and Abel was pretty bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah. My tradition, I come out of a Calvinist Presbyterianism. And Calvin's language that he uses is to talk about the total depravity of humankind. Mm. Now he doesn't think that humankind's by our nature are totally depraved. He thinks it's the force of sin in the world. Or, you know, we can get into a whole theological conversation about that. But a lot of times when, you know, people find out I'm Presbyterian, they want to talk about total depravity. And they want to say, they say, like, that's such a negative view of what humankind is like. And part of me is like, you are exactly right. That is really negative. And I want to think better things about humanity than that. But then sometimes I look around at the world and I think that is exactly right. There people, I don't want to say people are terrible. I want to say people are capable of terrible things. And that oftentimes in my just casual experience of the world seems to outweigh the good things that we're capable of maybe that's like the media that i consume or the company that i keep or i don't know what it is but i just sometimes and especially these days i feel the weight of that and so when the text says "Where god says or the lord saw that they were thoroughly evil and everything they thought was always evil i'm like i mean i kind of get that i can kind of see that what do you think about that is this overly pessimistic or do you see truth there or somewhere in between
1: I mean, I see the translation in that um, NJPS is every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time. Yeah. I think that I continue to be probably somewhat naively shocked that there are any people for whom I might make this kind of assessment, although... Again, based on the the media I consume, I have I have come to the unfortunate conclusion that there are people that that I think this would describe. But I don't think that I this is not my view of humanity. Yeah. I think we are a mess for sure. I think some people, it is their planning to be a mess. I think some people, we me- I think we mess up all the time, but I think that's different than, plotting for evil.
0: This, the language here is Yetzer Mach um, the inclination of their thoughts. And I was, it made me think of the evil inclination in Judaism. Is that a connection that's reasonable to make?
1: I, I think so. Can you I talk a little so. bit about that? Yeah, so there's this Jewish teaching that everyone has what's called a Yetzer Hara and a Yetzer Hatov, an inclination towards evil and an inclination towards good. But the Jewish teaching is not that we should rid ourselves of the Yetzer Hara. The Yetzer Hara are things like ego or appetite or, you know, like sexual um, desire. And there are things that can get out of control. Like if if you let it take over, it will drive you to evil. Yeah. But if you can harness it for good purposes, it can have a real, it can, this is where progress comes from. Like this is Mm. how humans procreate. This is how, uh, this is how work gets done you know this is how we we continue to do things that are hard and there is there's ego in it for most yeah. people like that that is a driver and so the idea is that there's there's power in the or ha'ra that we are meant to harness but it needs to be kept in check and i actually feel like a lot of the teachings in the torah are about what are some some boundaries we can put around those various yeah. human appetites that we have yeah. So yeah, it's interesting if we think about this as like a all of the the appetites that 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 most humans have just gone totally amok, like totally unchecked. What would that look like in the world? And I, it, yeah, it that's a really interesting way to think about it. That is like that takes seriously the evil of it, but also makes me able to feel a little more connection to this yeah. text as opposed to saying like. They were only evil all the time. Like that's a pretty strong.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's a yeah. strong statement. That's yeah. a strong statement. But I have, I have a Yetzer hara. Yeah, I think everybody does.
0: I like that way of thinking about it, Amy. A lot that it's like the Yetzer hara that has that's gone unchecked. I, to me, that's really useful language. Like when you stop checking the evil inclination and trying to turn it back toward good, even though it's always going to persist, then things go. And it Mm seems, it seems like people have stopped in this text, checking Mm -hmm. their evil inclinations and just run amok. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. It's a, it's a much more helpful way to me too to think about it than just like people are bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No,
1: I like, I like that a lot. I like
0: that. You know, it's interesting because later on in this text, I don't think we're actually going to read it, but God says people are every thought of their hearts is evil and therefore I will never destroy them again. And so it's like by the end of this text, God has sort of come out where you're talking to say like, mm. oh, okay, there's this, this is this is part of human nature to have this sort of inclination, but getting rid of it's not the w- solution, like figuring out right. ways to harness it. Right, we're going to have to it.
1: figure out what to do with it.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I really love that. The very last, almost the last verse that we read here, um, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. To me, that addition of violence is really helpful there. It's not just, like, people are drinking and smoking and <laughs> whatever, like, the list of sins <laughs> are. But, like, the key is that there is violence being enacted.
1: Yeah. yeah. At the end there, that's all creatures behaved corruptly. I, yeah, but that's what I was just going to ask you about. So at the at the beginning, again, like, this is two different versions of the story, yeah. you know, intermingled. At the beginning, it says it was the humans that are the problem, But then God says, I'm just going to blot out everything. Yeah. The people and the animals and the creeping things and the birds. I regret this whole situation, but it only identifies the humans as evil. But then by the time we get to that second one towards the end, it's not just the humans that are evil. It is, uh, I'm looking for the actual words here.
0: In the CEB in verse 12, it's because all creatures behaved corruptly on the earth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is all flesh had corrupted its ways on earth. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I I guess maybe that includes animals.
0: I think there's actually some ambiguity in that text, the way that it's actually written in Hebrew. The word there is basar, which means all flesh, which Mm. I think one could reasonably take as a reference to all creatures. The way the CEB does, but I think you could also reasonably say it's referring to humans. And you know, to me that either way you go, is kind of interesting because if you say it's only humans and yet all the animals also get yeah. destroyed, that opens up this whole world of like the things that humans do have impact that reaches far beyond human beings. So we, we bring the whole of creation down with us, even though it's like all the other creatures mm-hmm. are innocent, they get caught up in this thing. Mm -hmm. But I also think about, you know, like in Isaiah and other places where there's this, these images of like the lion lying down with the lamb and, you know, kids playing over the hole of the adder and things like that, that there really is a biblical vision in which animals don't, aren't predators. And that's the way they were created to be, I think, in Genesis one, even Um, Mm -hmm. they're given the plants to eat. And so you know, so I think there is a way of thinking about even the even the natural predation of animals is viewed as violence in this text. Yeah. And so that is seen like that's not the way the world is supposed to be. So yeah. humans are violent in our sort of animal nature. Animals are violent in their animal nature. And so we've got to, well, God's got to start over. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. which one of those ways of reading. It. I mean, I guess you don't really have to settle. But. Like, are you thinking like the field mice and the emus and whatever are like terrible? Or are you thinking like, what are you thinking?
1: You know, it's really interesting to think about whether there is something inherent in the in the nature of animals that that is problematic to the text that really would sort of, that almost makes me change the way that I think about. Like reading this just about the humans, it's sort of like humans messed up. Yeah. Like the humans did, this is a judgment. Yeah. on the humans once you add the animals into the equation for me it's much more god created a system yeah for all of us with our natures that is not actually what god had in mind
0: yeah
1: like for me it, it sort of takes the the moral judgment piece out of it and is just like there was there was a problem in the conception of this thing which i mean i'm sure that's like deeply heretical in all traditions but that's where my mind goes when you when you add animals to the equation yeah. if the animals are not in the equation it's actually an interesting question to me like why couldn't god just wipe out the humans like can yeah. creation not exist in god's mind yeah without humans like are we so integral to this thing that
0: yeah Let's hang on to that I question. I think that's an interesting one because, you know, a flood is not a very precise, it's not a surgical tool. No, you know? like, no, no,
1: um, no. no. You'd, you'd have to use a different system. Yeah,
0: but maybe there would ha- could have been other ways. The other thing to keep in mind about that where you were just were is in the narrative flow, we're post-Eden. And so mm-hmm. we're actually not in the world, at least in the J version of the story, we're not in the world that God originally intended Because of human Mm. disobedience, we're now in some other kind of world where there's animosity. And so even so then you can sort of, you know, human disobedience still ends up in the equation there. So that's kind of probably where I tend to go is that human disobedience has created division in the world and that animals in one way or another kind of get caught up in that. I don't know, though. Let's sort of hang on. Let's sort of hang on to that. Now, God's plan is, I'm just going to wipe out everything. But the language in verse 6 is just so striking to me, especially the way that the CEB translated it. God is This is not God is like, ha-ha, you are mm. terrible. I'm going to strike you down. The CEB, the Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and he was heartbroken. Mm. I just like that image of a heartbroken God. This is not God who is like just waiting to like destroy something. Can you talk about that image and how, how you sit with it?
1: This is a weird answer to the question, I think, but I will, but it's what is at the front of my mind. So, so I'll just say it. Have you heard of a thinker named Adrian Marie Brown? I don't know her. She's, she's common with the, the younger folk (laughs) than us, the younger generations. And she describes herself as like a sort of a spiritual activist Mm. who who is involved in, in like justice activism in the world and also on sort of spiritual care for people who are involved in that work, which is really spiritually draining. And one of the things she was interviewed recently on, she's come up in my life in a lot of ways in the past few months, but one of them was that she was interviewed on On Being. And one of the first things she talked about was the strength that it takes to recognize when something that you have created, mm. like, a, for example, a nonprofit or, a you know, something, shouldn't exist anymore in the mm-hmm. form that it's in. Either because it met its mission, it did what it was supposed to do, and it should break down and let the resources be you sort of reformed towards something else. Or because it's not doing what it was meant to do. But there's this there's this feeling sometimes in the community that she's a part of and that I'm a part of that once you start something and it's like, this is your baby, this is your yeah. idea, you have to make it work. You have to hold on to it like in perpetuity.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot lately about sort of the life cycle of, of ideas and the life cycle of movements and of, you know, organizations. And w- and the the work and the courage that it takes to be able to say like, I think we need to dissolve this and sort of let the mushrooms break it all down, and then yeah, see what springs up from it. And that's like it's impacting my whole reading of this whole story. Yeah. But I but I think and this is not a very theological statement, but it's a very human statement. Like I see God sort of in that place that like God created this thing wholeheartedly. And it really, like, this should have worked. This should have worked. But to be able to recognize it it didn't, and I'm going to do something about it, and be able to grieve that and act on it. I mean, I don't really like that that meant destroying, you know, all of life. That, that's, yeah. a, that's a problem. But in a more abstracted example, I actually think that's, a, that's an important thing for me to remember is an option.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about the way you read the Bible is you're often talking about how God is, like, figuring out how to be a God in relationship to human beings. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, is that what human beings are like? (laughs) Is is that what human (laughs) beings need? Like, oh, let's, like, I really, like, that helps me make sense. I mean, I'm kind of similar, but that helps me make sense of texts like this. And what you're saying there, like, God created with this like beautiful intention and like imagine how wonderful it was going to be. And then the reality of it is like, Oh my goodness. Like it is the nature of human beings that they're not ever going to be quite what I had imagined. And so now what am I going to do? Yeah. And I like that, the courage to kind of start over. I, I I've never thought about this text that way as you know, Act, well, because
1: uh, it's a terrifying and violent it's text. Like it's, it, <laughs> yes, this is exactly. not a children's story. No, but it is. Which it's is so uh, weird just because there are animals. I mean, <laughs> I <know. laughs> you really can't actually read the story and say this is. I mean, you got to really skip over them some yeah. important plot points.
0: <laughs> My daughter, you know who is four, is just gotten her first children's Bible, and she's really into it. Um, and so we've read it cover to cover a couple times already, and. That story, she's she loves that story. I'm
1: like, this is Mm -hmm. a really terrible story. Like, well, they don't like in the pictures. There's not like people drowning in the flood. Like, it's true. It's sort of terrifying. Children's, but you kind of have to know
0: what's going on. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So it's such a cognitive disconnect for me.
1: Bobby, how do you think about God being heartbroken?
0: Heartbroken. Hmm. Like I. I don't know how to make sense of it. And I really love where you went with it, but just that image, like this is a God who really, really wants to be in relationship and who really, really wants it to work out. This is not the kind of like knee jerk, hair trigger, vengeful God, Mm -hmm. even though what God is about to do is really, really awful. Mm -hmm. at least from the human perspective. And like, I don't quite know how to hold those two things together, but it gives me some comfort to think like, like there's a God who grieves. Mm -hmm. There's a God who grieved then when humans do violence to each other. There's a God who grieves now when humans do violence to each other. There's a God who recognizes that things are not the way, like when God set out to do it, this is not what God had
1: Mm -hmm. hoped
0: was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I really love that idea. And God is kind of working it out along the way. Like that, I don't like, I don't know. Some people like a God who is like large and in charge all the time. And I kind of appreciate the idea that God is feeling things and is regretting things and is not sure like, what should I do next? And, and trying the best God can to make to make a, a world with us. I don't know. It's a different kind of sense of like sovereignty or fidelity or something Mm -hmm. than is often the Mm -hmm. case, but it's a Mm -hmm. God that's much more relatable to me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, God has decided to destroy everything, but then there's Noah. And you read this text for us at the end of last season, which I appreciated so much. uh, The Torah practice of starting where the next cycle is going to pick up and you went all the way through. Verse eight, as for Noah, the Lord approved of him because you said we've got to end on something that's hopeful in the Jewish in the Jewish yeah. way. So even in the midst of all this disappointment, there's Noah and his descendants. The language there, in the CEB, he was moral and exemplary and he walked with God. When you imagine Noah, like why does God look favorably on Noah? Do you have any thoughts about like, what is it about Noah?
1: I, I guess, I mean, I, I, I picture Noah as as really being sort of set apart from the rest of his, his his society and I don't know if that's just because I don't know I don't know why exactly that is maybe I'm picturing him sort of alone in the ark but I mean the other thing is that what he's asked to do you know I'm about to destroy the whole world so make yourself an ark yeah <laughs> and you know and we don't we don't know how he felt about this but I know one of the questions the rabbis have about him is why didn't he go warn people? Mm. Like if he was so righteous, why wasn't he concerned for the fate of other people? Um, and I guess one answer in my mind is that he, he really was pretty, as you were saying, you know, if, if humans are on their own are often good um, and humans in society often have troubles, I picture Noah as being kind of a loner.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I do think you get a sense of Noah as kind of a loner, or at least like it seems like he's the only righteous person. And I guess there's his three sons, which is not, it's less clear whether they are also righteous or whether his righteousness sort of covers them. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about that? Is there a Jewish teaching about are they also righteous or is it because he's righteous? Do you know?
1: In my mind, it's because he's righteous. Yeah. And so maybe that makes it more likely that they're righteous. But yeah, no, in my mind, it's all, this is all Noah.
0: The language that's here about Noah walked with God, that's the hithpael hithalech And it's the same verb that's used of the way God and Adam walked together in the Garden of Eden. And mm. so to me, those that seem connected, that there's like an intimacy of relationship, like, Noah's kind of living his life like following God around, you know, like doing the thing. And so I don't know specifically what that means, but it seems to me like the the patterns of his life are very much taken sort of take their lead from what God is God is up to. It's like a God is Noah's companion.
1: It's reminding me a little bit of um the teaching from Micah to walk humbly with your God. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Mhm. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. He's doing that. Which does it which can mean like it's just sort of like the way you live your life is like consciously in relationship mm-hmm. all the time instead of like here's the specific things that one must right. do. Right. It's not
1: like a checklist of things. Yeah. It's more um yeah. Hi
0: everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bible Worms spend a lot of time and energy studying, Recording and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as four dollars per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon. Patreon.com slash podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so God is gonna destroy everything except God has now picked out Noah and his family. So I'll pick up then in verse 13. So up until now, Noah doesn't know what's happening. So in verse right. 13, God said to Noah, The end has come for all creatures since they have filled the earth with violence. I am now about to destroy them along with the earth, so make a wooden ark. Make the ark with nesting places and cover it inside and out with tar. This is how you should make it. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for the ark and complete it one foot from the top. Put a door in its side, in the hold below, make the second and third decks. I am now bringing the floodwaters over the earth to destroy everything under the sky that breathes. Everything on earth is about to take its last breath. But I will set up my covenant with you. You will go into the ark together with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. From all living things, from all creatures, you are to bring a pair, male and female, into the ark with you to keep them alive. From each kind of bird, from each kind of livestock, and from each kind of everything that crawls on the earth, a pair from each will go in with you to stay alive. Take some from every kind of food and stow it as food for you and for the animals. Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. So this is kind of interesting to me, even from the beginning, when God has said the whole thing is messed up and we've got to destroy it. Like God is immediately also working to save everything. Mm. You have thoughts about that kind of like, like I'm going to destroy all everything that breathes, but let's make sure there's enough of you to re to restart. You have any I mean I don't even know what my question is but those si- those two things happening simultaneously is very interesting to me.
1: That is so it is really interesting and it and it's you know related I think to my like smaller level observation that like it's just so I just find it so funny that he gives such specific instructions about the boat <laughs> <laughs> yeah that he's supposed yeah. to make. Like those are really specific very I mean, specific everything but like I just, I
0: just, you know, that. Noah wasn't really That's paying so attention, right? Like, God shows up and I is know. like, gonna destroy the world. Okay, like a foot and a half from here. And you're like, I know, there's I know. no way you're
1: paying attention. And I <laughs> almost is like when you're these moments in life where you're like, you're holding some real grief about something, and also it, uh, also in that sort of planning mode. Yeah. You know? And so I mean, in, in a sense, the plan is destroy everything. But I almost see see like God's interest in all of these details about like, you know, my translation has like what what kind of wood it's supposed to yeah. be and what like I mean it's really. <laughs> but there is like a there's just this like hopefulness about it. Like, yes, everything is terrible and we're gonna end the whole thing, but I'm gonna focus more like give more words to the plan for survival than I am to the fact that I'm wiping everything out, which emotionally I'm like, what? Like give Noah a minute here. Like what, what is he thinking about this? Like what is going through his mind? What is on his heart when God says, okay, so I'm going to destroy the whole earth except you, your family is going to be the only family in existence. Yeah. There's no time to, to sit with that, because, yeah, because it's like God's energy quickly heaps up on the, the the plan for what what could be next. There's a hopefulness you really do about have
0: a that. sense that there, yeah. There's a hopefulness and there's an urgency about it. You mm-hmm. better get to work, Noah, because like this thing is coming. You know, so I sit really this this kind of balance between God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's mercy. Is such a hard thing for me. And this text ag- amplifies that in some, I mean, it's just so clearly a problem here. One of the thinkers that's helped me, I mean, I don't know that it helps, but James Cone, you know, who is a famous black liberation theologian who died just a couple years ago. And he talks about God's love and God's wrath being flip sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And for those who are oppressed, God's love looks like wrath toward the oppressor. And like, it has taken me a long time to get my head around that. But I but, I mean, he's, he's right about that, I think. And so one way of processing what's happening in the story is the violence cannot be allowed to stand. And so that God has to do, like maybe God could have used a finer tuned instrument, but the violence ha- cannot be allowed to stand. And so this sort of desire to, Also show a way forward, even while putting an end to the violence that, you know, like that's kind of the closest I can come to making sense out of this text. The the fact that God uses violence to put an end to violence feels like a poor choice to me. (laughs) And like later on, God's going to try some other kinds of things in order to put an end to human violence. In the Christian story, like it is exactly human violence against Jesus that puts an end to human, like not Mm -hmm. an end to human violence, Mm -hmm. but to the significance of human violence. Like the story has, it goes on in in both traditions from here, but that impulse of like, we got to stop this, but I, but I also want to make a future possible seems like the right impulse, even if the means are a little difficult.
1: Yeah. I'm interested. I'm still chewing on, you know, you used, the phrase i think mercy and mercy and justice was that mm-hmm. it and i think i am not reading this story as i hear you say that i realize i'm mm. not reading this story as any of that mm. like i almost feel like this is like like god is looking at god's project like this is not about a like about any personal connection to anybody. Maybe I would see that coming more once we sort of get into these more covenanted relationships later. But this is like, this project didn't work. So we're ending it and we're starting a new project. And then it's not that he loves Noah. It's that Noah's the best person for that job. And it's not that he has any feel. It's just not about the people to me. Like it's, that's interesting. It's this whole endeavor was a bust. And then that's sort of what changes, you know, a- after this story, maybe, maybe it's not just after the story, but, but you see more of more of this like personal relationship between God and humans or God makes some commitment to that yeah. more personal involvement.
0: Because you're exactly right. You do, you get covenant language, I think, for the first time in the biblical text right here. I'd have to check that. But in verse 18, I will set up my covenant with you, like future tense. Yeah. So the covenant is going to be the new thing at the end of this text. But currently, there is no relationship, like a committed relationship. That's an interesting way to think about it. Like to me, the like violence is the problem, and an end needs to be put to violence seems like judgment or justice. Maybe justice yeah. is not exactly right. Maybe judgment is really what I mean. And saving somebody in the process, like God's not able to or willing to put a complete end to it, seems like mercy. But I think you're mm-hmm. right. Like I probably have over emphasized or something. Like I I, I I do think it's there. But I see uh, yeah, what you're no, saying. No, I'm not
1: saying it's not there at all. It just, yeah. it never occurred to me until I heard you say that, that I don't th- I think I read this story in a pretty depersonalized.
0: Yeah. I kind of like that. Like I kind of like the depersonalized way. And then what's changing is God is moving closer toward personal relationships. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really, really interesting. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but like, uh, like I, what to me, what's interesting is the saving of the people. I guess Mm -hmm. the saving of the animals (laughs) We probably should talk about too. I don't know really what to say about that besides God saves the animals. Must have been a crowded boat.
1: I have a bar mitzvah student who's, we ju- I just read this with the other day. And the kinds of questions he has about this are just things that, first of all, the fish would have been just fine. Yeah. The fish could have just lived yeah. in the floodwaters. Yeah. And then he had a lot of questions about what kind of food you bring onto the boat for carnivorous animals and whether you should bring animals that are alive because otherwise the meat would rot. Yeah. Or if they had some system for preserving it, I don't think we need to get into all that. Yeah. Dive into the mind of a 12-year-old.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I guess in the P version of the story anyway, everybody's a vegetarian at this point. Although then I don't know what the mm. violence of animals is. but Because it's not until the end of this story that God gives permission to eat meat.
1: Even for the animals? The animals are so. vegetarians? Yeah, in Genesis oh, great. 1. Yeah. I'll, great. Mm-hmm. I'll tell him that next time. He'll be glad. <laughs> I
0: think time. so. Go back and check me. But like, yeah, the the uh, the plants, the seed-bearing plants are given as a- food for the animals.
1: Great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's my answer. Everybody's a vegetarian. Okay, so we're moving on to chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. We're sort of skipping over the, like the details of how the flood got started and everything. So... We're picking up on after, after the flood has already started. So chapter eight, verse six. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent out a raven and it flew back and forth until the waters over the entire earth had dried up. Then he sent out a dove to see if the waters on all of the fertile land had subsided, but the dove found no place to set its foot. It returned to him in the ark since water still covered the entire earth. Noah stretched out his hand, took it, and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out from the ark again. The dove came back to him in the evening, grasping a torn olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the waters were subsiding from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove, but it didn't come back to him again. In Noah's 600 first year, on the first day of the first month, the waters dried up from the earth. Noah removed the ark's hatch and saw that the surface of the fertile land had dried up. This text lingers for a really long time. On these birds flying back and forth, like that's what—that's what happened in that little section of text. Yeah. What do? You, what are your thoughts about why? Why does this text linger so long on the flying of the birds?
1: I love that question, especially for a text that there's so much it doesn't tell us. So to yeah. get these little like moments that are all of a sudden under a magnifying glass, like this. You know this this question of like, how do you know when it's over? Yeah, um, which again is like a a really deeply human <laughs> question when you when you feel like you're in this period of of destruction or you or you have been told the world is is not only dangerous but uninhabitable right now and you need to hold up. Gosh, now it's starting. To, I'm making it sound like COVID, which I didn't mean to make it sound like, but like, how how do you know? how do you know when it's over? And I, I don't know. I love this, that first the the bird, well, first of all, again, there are two different versions of the story. Yeah. Just, you know, one of them is a raven and it gets this done in one verse. <laughs> yeah. And then we get, and then we get the dove Yeah. and it's just such a, I don't know if I have a lot of metaphorical meaning to put on it. I just love that. Like the first time he sends it out, no. It's not ready. It's not that he suddenly knew that the world was ready. And the second time he saw progress, but it still wasn't ready. And only the third time did he know. And he knew because the bird didn't come back. Yeah. Which is a kind of an ambiguous way to find something out, you know, like if (laughs) if you're (laughs) looking, you can you can sort of surmise from that that, like, I guess the bird found somewhere else to land, but maybe the bird got dizzy and flew into the water. In
0: the <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I love the way you're thinking about that, Amy, because if you just imagine what it's like to be on that boat in the middle of like, if you imagine a cosmic flood and the, the trauma of that, they've got the doors, the windows closed, like everything is closed up. And that question of how, I haven't thought of it that way, but how do you know when it's over? And the sign that it's over is very, very subtle. I really love the dove. Like the little mm-hmm. dove just feels like so brave to me. <laughs> like it's flying out and it's looking, like it's looking. And there's a, such a, a gentle relationship, just in my reading anyway, between Noah and the dove. Like in verse 11 in the, in the Hebrew, it says that dove could not find a resting place for the soles of its feet. And mm. they're just, I don't know what it is about that, but it just sounds like it's so like his little feet or her little feet had no place to rest. And so. I
1: think that's verse nine.
0: Oh, verse nine. You're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I love that too. I love that. Cause otherwise I would just picture the bird like fly back in the, just fly back in the window. Yeah. But it's, you know, but he couldn't find a place to put his feet, little bird. So Noah stuck out yeah. his hand. <laughs> his little so the hand bird had a place to put yeah. his
0: feet. That's so sweet. Like there's such an intimacy, such a connection between these two creatures. And like, you know, they're both like thinking about survival and mm. it's just such a beautiful thing. And then the, the olive leaf is the sign like, oh, the, it's a tiny little, there must have been somewhere out there, an olive tree that was sticking up above the water enough that that little dove could have landed there for a second and got on the leaf. And that's like the symbol. That's the way, you know, like a tiny little sliver of evidence. And then I love the way you said that, that then the final evidence is a lack of evidence, right? The, the dove just never comes back. Yeah. And you have to trust. I love that. You have to trust that the dove found a place to land instead of that the dove finally gave out and and died in the waters or whatever. Like,
1: Yeah, after such a like profoundly terrifying destruction... The signs that it's safe again are so subtle. hmm Yeah.
0: You feel so much relief at the end. Oh, the earth has dried up and now you can, there's fertile ground again. But can you just imagine like you get off the boat and everything that used to be there is gone? Like you are the only, what is that, eight people and yeah. some animals? I just like the, what, the... Hopelessness, or the I don't even know, like it feels like such a moment of possibility in the text. But then when you think about what that would actually be like, right?
1: If you really try this, this text, like so many biblical texts, doesn't give us anything about the interior of Noah or anyone in his family. All we have is the children's stories where they're quite happy to do this, and you know, (laughs) like this is all great. Um, It's sort of like, you know, an old McDonald's kind of version of the story. But I'm actually surprised there's not like some kind – maybe there is some kind of like young adult novel or movie or something that really looks at this as a sort of like dystopian, you know, what what would this really feel like? Yeah. Like maybe you'd feel a little bit of sort of pride or self-righteousness or faith or maybe a lot of that, but but also – I would imagine a lot of fear and grief and unsureness.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the final section of this text picks up in chapter nine, verse eight, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I am now setting up my covenant with you, with your descendants and with every living being with you, with the birds, with the large animals and with all the animals of the earth, leaving the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be the symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all creatures. flood waters will never again destroy all creatures. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. God said to Noah, This is the symbol of the covenant that I have set up between me and all creatures on the earth. So you were talking a little while ago about the relationality that you did not see early in the text. And then now here we have kind of explicit language of covenant between God and the language is all creatures. Mm So I'm just curious where you start thinking about like the significance of this covenant that's being made right here.
1: You know, it's so interesting because as often happens to me in these conversations, it's not really a question I had thought about before before we started talking <laughs> yeah. about So I feel like it's a little bit of a half-baked thought in my head. And I actually have often wondered, why does God make, why after, at this moment, would God make an eternal covenant? Like, has God not just seen what could, what could happen? Like, what has yeah. changed? I know, fine, this, these are descendants of Noah, but like, descendants are descendants, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, why does God think that it's going to be better? And I think a different answer to that question is somehow over the course of this experience, maybe God thought that God could approach this all as the sort of like, we are a mission driven organization and we are only, you know, abiding to our mission. And if the mission, you know, like not, not human based, but like, this is, we're trying to accomplish something here and be willing to blow it all up. And somehow over the course of, this time yeah god has decided to create something different yeah like that it's not just this is how i want the the earth to look it is still that but there's also there's also a covenant like there's also this more i would say interpersonal but god's not really a person but relational
0: relational yeah
1: aspect to it
0: I really love that, Amy. And it's not in the text that we're reading, but in chapter 8, verse 21, God says, I will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings, since the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth. Yeah. So at the beginning of this text, God said, I'm going to destroy the world because human beings are evil from their youth. And at the end, God says, I'm never going to destroy the world again, at least with a flood, because human beings are evil from their youth. So yeah. Human beings haven't changed from the beginning to the end of this text, but God's orientation to human beings absolutely has changed. I I think you're on exactly the right path that God has chosen here to take a different approach. And it is a covenanted approach, a relational approach, which has a commitment that, okay, I realize it's never going to be the way that I imagine it could be. And yet Mm -hmm. I'm going to be committed to it anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really, really, really profound to me. Do you make anything of the all creatures aspect of this text? It's not just even with the human beings here. It's with every creature that was on the ark. Like The, the scope of this covenant is enormous.
1: Well, I actually, I need to check the Hebrew. I don't know if you have it more handy than I do. In verse 11, it says, I will maintain my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. So does, do you think that means the covenant is with all flesh?
0: So verse 15 is where I'm kind of working you're, from. Okay,
1: you're looking at 15.
0: I will remember the covenant between me and you and every mm, living being and yeah, yeah, all yeah. the creatures.
1: Yep, that's pretty clear there.
0: But I like what you're saying. Like, you know, the sense that you get is the covenant sort of has Noah at its core, but it bro- mm-hmm. is broader than that. Mm-hmm. So I think your sort of instinct like, oh, but it's with Noah is probably right. But then it sort of got the, then it includes all creatures in it as well. So I mean, it's sort it's of in the same way that, or
1: that you were pointing out earlier that when humans bring violence to the earth, like the impact yes. yeah. is on everything.
0: Yeah. So this is the reverse. Now there is a this human is the who brings yeah. some kind of change in God's heart that now has implications for all of creation. I really like that. I also like the, I love the universality of this covenant. Like God's going to get more specific later about Mm -hmm. God's covenants, but here it's not any particular people group. It's not even just people. It is all creatures. And so we are all tied up in this covenant with God together, whoever we are and whatever species we are, like it is big, 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 this relational aspect of God. And sometimes we like to divide ourselves up into little camps and, you know, all of the things, but to say this, like God has come toward humankind and toward mm-hmm. all creation mm-hmm. the same, like on equal footing at this sort of broadest level. To me, that's really important and really profound. It has ecological implications where some sometimes I think especially Christians will say, well, God kind of gave us the earth to like have dominion and subdue. And so we can do whatever we want. And then here, it's not that it is mm-hmm. God has made a covenant with all life, and so we need to be respectful of the of the covenant as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. There are there are maybe moments or ways in which like we'll have different relationships to things within creation, and then there is this sort of foundational starting place where if God has the same relationship to each thing in creation, we can derive from that that. Yeah whatever differences we have in our, you know, in the way that we relate to different parts of creation, it's not because we are fundamentally different or superior or closer to God or. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: The other thing I want to ask you about is this language, like this whole thing about the rainbow and the reminder
1: Wouldn't it be funny if this whole thing were just like written as like a gesso story? Like, why is there a rainbow in the sky? And someone wrote a very elaborate story. (laughs) It's just all an
0: etiology of the rainbow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean,
0: I think it is that at some level. But like, and you know, the thing that always gets me here is God does not say the rainbow will be in the sky to remind you Mm. that I will be faithful to you. It's that the rainbow is in the sky to remind me that I promise never to destroy you again. It's mm. just that, like, that's so interesting. I don't know. How do you think about that sort of the idea that there is a reminder when I see that I will remember?
1: I mean, it's almost like in a similar way to how you pointed out later in this chapter, God says, like, God recognizes human nature and and makes a conscious decision that even even given all the problems with human nature... You know, God will not destroy the world with a flood, which is actually a little bit of a narrow promise, but <laughs> is, that, you know, okay, we'll take it, we'll take it. Yeah. It's almost like God anticipates that <laughs> there will be moments <laughs> yeah. you know, like there will there like that like the parenting, you know, conversation that we talked about before. Like you can decide that you are not going to engage in certain kinds of ways that you find are are not helpful or are violent towards your relationship or whatever. But there will be moments. Yeah. So you're going to have to work towards that. Like God is committing to something that maybe is not not going to be easy.
0: Yeah. Brueggemann talks about, I talk about Brueggemann so much, I got to find somebody else to talk about. But He's a smart guy. He is. And he asks really interesting questions and he was very formative for me. But he, I've been reading some of his work and he talks about, I think he might be actually drawing on David Blumenthal, who was our teacher at Emory, you know? Mm-hmm. but he talks about God being a being in recovery from violence, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. which
0: I think is really interesting language. And I'm not entirely sure that I want to go all the way with him there. But what he is saying is exactly along your lines of there are going to be times and there are times. And we talked about that text last year, Numbers 14 where God wants to destroy everybody. And Moses talked God back down mm-hmm. and saying like, no, no, remember, you're also a compassionate God. And to me, this rainbow kind of functions that way. Like there's, mm-hmm. even if there's not a, not a Moses to talk me back down, here's a rainbow that's going to remind me of the commitment that I made. Like, I'm still going to have the impulse to want to destroy right? <laughs> sometimes. Cause that, yeah, but here's the rainbow. That's going to like, keep me, keep me in check. All right, Amy, well, this text has many, many things that one could talk about, and we've talked about some of them. I'm curious, as you're sort of thinking about how this text connects with contemporary life and with our communities, what you, what's rising to the top for you?
1: I think that what's rising to the top of my mind today is, oh, this question of when something, I can't get away from this Adrian Marie Brown. Yeah, sort of question that I raised earlier. And I really like the added element at the end of God moving from a sort of the earth is supposed to look a particular way to I am committed to certain behaviors in relationship to the inhabitants of the earth. Yeah. And I think those are two really different ways to go about different endeavors we might go about in our life, you know? So for example, raising children, like for me, given the, I mean, I'm sure there are, there are boundaries in this too, Um, but I'm committed to the children that I have and they do all kinds of stuff and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm in it with them. Because I'm committed yeah. to them personally. Whereas there are other undertakings that I do that if it is, <laughs> if, if, if things were happening, like some of the things my children try to do, I would just be like, this is not working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we need to call it. But to, to have the sort of insight to know which one are you doing. Like, is it that you're clearly working towards a mission and when the mission's not working, you need to call it and end this project and let it reform in a different way? Or is it that you are committed to the people and however that needs to shift what your vision is, then it needs to shift what your vision is. And I'm just finding that a really interesting way to look at all kinds of different things in my life from like, you know, things where you could say there's any kind of mission to any way that I spend my time. Like, am I am I doing this because of an ideal or am I doing this because of the people who are involved in it? And I think that actually has a lot of fruit for me to um, help me make decisions about what, what should be in my life and what should not be in my life. You know, we're... Reading this text is we're in this Jewish month of Elul, which leads up to the High Holy Days, which is this time of reflection in the in the Jewish community about where our lives are sort of on track and where maybe they veered off a little bit. And part mm-hmm. of that, you know, always is thinking about what what kind of boundaries you need to have, not just to keep things out of your life, but to keep things in your life, like, to really assess, like, what do I have in my life and in my spirit and in my work and what should be there and what shouldn't be there and how do I need to to pivot? And I'm surprised to hear myself saying this because this really is such a disturbing and violent story in so many ways. But if you can get past that, I don't know. It's actually, it it can be, it's a little freeing at this moment for me to see God just look at this and say like, I need to, I need to kind of start this over. This is not working. And if I just keep trying to do little fixes and massage things, like it's not gonna, it's not, it's not what I meant to do. And I, I need to turn it all the way back. I've never thought anything anything like even so vaguely positive about this story. So I'm surprised to hear that coming out of yeah. my mouth. But that's that's how it's hitting me right at this moment.
0: That's so interesting, Amy. I, I'm gonna have to I, I, I'm gonna have to think about that one. I think there's a lot of richness there. And then I'm trying to decide if what I'm about to say agrees with that or is like exactly the opposite <laughs> of that. Great. I'm not quite sure, but the thing that's sticking with me about this text It's that line that's in chapter six, right at the very beginning that said, the Lord regretted making human beings on earth Mm -hmm. and he was heartbroken. And I've just been thinking about that grief, the grief of God and the regret at having created human beings who turn out to be pretty violent and that God's like move then is destruction. And I mean, That is so true. I don't know what it says about God exactly, but it's so true of human experience, I think, that our violence is often born out of our grief. Like we have lost Mm. something that we don't know how to get back any other way. Something has disappointed us. Something has turned out some way that we don't know how to handle. And so our solution, people are not what we want them to be. And so our solution is violence. And like that instinct for God, like I'm, I regret this so much. Like I'm heartbroken about it. So I'm going to destroy something. And I see that in myself. And so I think there's something about, you know, like this historical moment that we're in, like, I kind of want to burn something down, like about every other day, maybe every day. Like I get that. And the move that God makes to at the end, I mean, maybe it's, it's pretty late in the game by now. But God does finally make a move to say, people are wicked. People are the same as they were at the beginning of this text. But whereas I chose to be violent about that previously, now I'm going to choose to commit myself to relationship, even though people are still pretty terrible. And I think, well, maybe that move that God makes from grief leads to violence to grief leads to deeper commitment. Maybe there's some, maybe there's something to that for me too, to say, I can choose to respond to my grief differently than simply being violent about it. And I can choose, I mean, I don't know, like there are unhealthy commitments that one can make out of one's grief. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to minimize that, yeah, but there are other options that, w- that we have that are not violent, that are recommitment and they are about relationship. I love that distinction that you're making in this text between like a pre-covenant God and a covenant God and the different responses that, that God has in those sort of different stages, or I don't know exactly how you think about it, but before the commitment violence is easier than once there is a commitment, then violence becomes harder. And and even though you know that that urge is still going to, arise in you from time to time. There's the rainbow that reminds God and we can have our own reminders. Like, oh nope, I choose to be different than that. I think there's a hope, even in the middle of this really, really awful story that paints God in a light that I do not like to think about God. The movement of God from the beginning to the end doesn't excuse what happens in the middle, but it reframes what happens in the middle a little bit. Like I think I think God ends up regretting. I mean I think the text actually uses that language. God regrets what God chose to do there and decides to do something different. And so I think, okay well if God is like that then then maybe we can be like that too.
1: I love that Bobby and I and you know it's funny you said at the beginning you weren't sure whether it agrees with what I said or or totally doesn't agree with what I say. Um, yeah. And I'm not totally sure either. yeah, other than that I'm thinking of this as like creation is is God's project that God has decided to stop and you're thinking of it as like yeah well your project was a bunch of living things so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah that does put like sort of a different yeah. uh different bent on the whole situation
0: that is true yeah
1: but i think that's really i think that's really right on that to think of think of this again sort of in in terms of our emotional lives and when we feel that we should have power over a situation and feel grief that our power is not not really expressing itself the way we would like it to. Yeah. It is, it does feel really normal to to lash out and to to decide to respond in a different way is a big deal. So it's kind of a cool moment to see in the if we could say that the evolution of God or the the growth of God's relationship to humans or however we want to talk yeah. about it. It's kind of a cool moment to witness.
0: Amy, this is quite a way of starting out the new season of The Bible Worm. I feel like we just jumped right into the thick of it here. We sure did. Yeah. Well, next week we're going to continue, I think, with this theme of God developing new ways of being in relationship to humankind. We're going to talk about God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis Mm -hmm. chapter 12, 1 Mm -hmm. to 9.
1: I look forward to it. That's a really good story.
0: It's a great story. All right. I'll see you next time.
1: I'll see you next time.
0: Bye. Bye. joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible podcast for details.
1: Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois.
0: Join us next time when we'll be discussing Genesis 12, 1-9, in which God again enters into covenant, this time with the family of Abraham. Until then, keep on digging.